Tonight, the North Korean hackers going even further. This was just the latest in a series of leaks. 143 million Americans, one of the largest cyber attacks in this country's history. Estimated losses from these breaches in excess of $20 billion. Hello and welcome back to Decrypted, a cybersecurity podcast for the everyday American. I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Asida, and I'm joined, as always, by my cyber partner in crime. Hello, my name is Dayton Williams. Um, uh, Dayton, are you uh, are you going to start the podcast with me? I'm afraid I can't let you do that, Jacob. This episode's about AI. That's right, everyone's favorite sci-fi topic, artificial intelligence. So today we're going to be diving into the security of artificial intelligence, its sort of role in society in the coming years, where it stands at the moment, and some things you might not be thinking about, like the biases inherent in artificial intelligence or the biases of the people that program artificial intelligence. And we're going to have an interview with our guest where we're going to discuss all of these topics and get a good perspective of you know the intelligence field, of right. just being an expert in AI in general. We're going to get a lot of information. Yeah, and you know this guy. I do know this guy. He was a former professor of mine. I'll just disclose that now and a uh, big fan of the class. So I definitely wanted to have him here, give him a little platform to speak on it. You know, So hopefully you all can learn something. It's kind of like a condensed version of the class all in one 30-minute setting. <laughs> All right, let's jump into it. So I guess one of the first questions that we have to ask, or at least an, uh, sort of an operational definition of what AI is, and another concept that's deeply tied to this is obviously machine learning. So we're going to do a pretty basic kind of you know, distinction of what these are for mm -hmm. the purposes of this recording. We're also going to work with a definition as we talk with Sean later. Right. Uh, but you know, AI in general is referring to like intelligent machines. It's, it's machines that are able to like critically think about a problem. Yeah, and usually the way that an AI is introduced to a problem is that it's introduced to a data set mm -hmm. and it studies that data set. And once that data set is encoded and understood, um, it can then make decisions and make predictions on what to do next. And machine learning is sort of like a lower level of AI. It's a little bit less impressive. It's, it's more just giving a machine access to data and letting it kind of learn from it and make decisions on itself and it doesn't necessarily always come to the right decision it has to be tailored mm -hmm. so these are just kind of ideas that we're going to be playing around with right so what do you think is the bi biggest distinction between machine learning and ai i mean the easiest thing to think about is you know machine learning is a little bit is more like a computer applied to statistics ai it's it's more than just that it's it's making kind of inferences beyond mm -hmm. that Right, decision making. It's it's more decision making, but uh, you know I think even people might argue with my uh, definition of that because it's kind of uh, unfortunately both of these terms are kind of right themselves a little buzzwordy. Yeah, because people care about this, people are passionate about it, and they're nerds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, oh, oh, yeah. yeah, no, continue. So Jacob, when you think of AI, what is the first thing your mind jumps to? The movie Her. Really? Have you have you seen her? I haven't seen her. I have. Uh, her is a movie about where a guy uh, whose business is writing letters, uh -huh. you know, it's like a... Like love letters? Like love letters, basically, oh, okay. from people, personalized love letters. He falls in love with a uh, AI on his phone. Uh -huh. I think a lot of people, when they hear AI... Well, well let's ask the question to you. What do you think of when you hear AI? Oh, man. Well, I think of uh, IBM's Watson, mm -hmm. which uh, we'll hear more a little bit from Sean later on. Uh, but also, I, wanna, I just want to be a little nerd for a second and say IBM created an artificial intelligence to play the very popular... Uh, multiplayer game League of Legends and that to me is just stunning because League of Legends if for those of you who don't play League of Legends is an incredibly compli complicated game like chess times 10 um, 
and they've been able to best, you know, the best Korean players in the world at League of Legends. And Korean players are very good at League of Legends. So I've heard. I don't know anything. <laughs> I surprisingly know nothing about League of Legends. Uh, I, you know, it's the next stage. You know, it's beating players at AlphaGo is beating, you know, regular Go players. And that mm-hmm. game is quite complex. Very hard to predict moves from that comparatively to chess, which is more or less solved for the most part. I mean, people would argue against that. Oh, no, definitely. And I'm sure people are going to take offense at League of Legends as chess times 10. Yeah. Uh, so I, so I managed to anger. We managed to anger. <laughs> don't tweet pro- at me. The professional chess community, <laughs> the professional Go community, and the professional League of Legends community. Yeah, and all of Korea. And all of Korea. <laughs> this is just kind of like a primer of some, you know, recent trends of AI just to, you know, get you thinking about the differences of it. I feel like a lot of people go straight towards AI used for like targeting, like Project Maven sort of a thing, or mm-hmm. like AI, like the Terminator. So, you know, there's a variety, a variety of like interpretations of how AI is used. And, you know, we're just kind of discussing a couple of fun ones. Right. So let's actually talk to Sean about, you know, where AI plays in the security field and we'll get a better sense of things. Mm. Okay, we are here with Sean Canuck to discuss AI and its role in cybersecurity and security in general. Uh, Sean, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? First off, thank you for the invitation to join you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, My background in a nutshell, I'm an international attorney by training who spent 16 years in the U.S. intelligence community, including having the privilege of serving as our first national intelligence officer for cyber issues. Since leaving public service, I run a consulting firm, and I also teach on the security implications of artificial intelligence at George Washington University. I should disclose to our listeners that it is a course I've actually taken and was the spurring moment of why we're having this conversation. It was quite an enlightening course. So I always suggest people to learn more. So just get off started, you know, think about the most preeminent question here is, uh, what will AI's impact, you know, be directly to cybersecurity processes? How will is it, how's it going to be implemented, do you think? Well, I think AI is going to be adopted in a wide range of sectors and applications, obviously across the IT sector, and in specific relationship to cybersecurity, it's going to be on both sides of the fence, right? It's rapidly getting adopted in defensive measures that we hear a lot about, uh, moving beyond what I would call dumb firewalls, IDSs, IPSs, into... Uh, state-aware and more data-driven analysis to help with cybersecurity. Uh, And you see a lot of commercial products and government efforts in those areas. What you don't hear as much about is actually the efforts to automate offensive cyber attack capabilities through artificial intelligence, which, of course, there are those as well. I foresee a future situation, and it's already a little bit incumbent upon us, where you have offensive AI algorithms designing malware attacks that defensive AI algorithms are trying to detect and prevent. So I think it's going to up the stakes on both sides. And it all, we're already starting to see that. It's interesting as the way it works, because, you know, the, the better it gets at it, the almost it is, it's almost easier to try to work against it. You know, you have a system that's designed to detect an intrusion, then you just simply need to break that system rather than, you know, a methodology almost in a way. Uh, that's true, but again, I think we end up in a hall of mirrors where, or you know, the recursive aspects of game theory, where if I know what you know, or mm-hmm. we all know what each other know, then you can start second guessing and triple guessing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about it in the way that we used to look at issues in the intelligence community. You know, you have agents, double agents, or you always wanted your offensive elements to be speaking with the defensive elements so that they could improve their job mm-hmm. and vice versa. No good cyber defense professional 
can be at the top of their game unless they're actually talking to really sophisticated hackers. You can't be an incredible zero-day exploiter and finder unless you're talking to people who are actually playing defense and designing the code. So it's really two sides of the same coin. So delving into a topic that's sort of tangential to cybersecurity is sort of the security of the internet in general. It's related how we have, you know, we have a large variety of disinformation campaigns going online. It's very difficult to determine like the veracity of a story at all. Uh, do you think that AI is going to serve a stronger role in perhaps detecting these initiatives or even serving, as you've already pointed out, with actually generating fake stories? How do you see its place in this sort of area? Well, again, both were already happening, right? We have AI algorithms writing minor league baseball box scores and you know journalism articles on that. We have AI being designed to create and disseminate disinformation on social media platforms and elsewhere. Uh, so I think it's, again, it's not only will it happen, it already is. For me, the internet is just a platform for the conveyance of information, and I actually prefer the word information much more than cyber, which is a fairly amorphous word that means a few different things to different people. For me, it's about the value of the information that underlies all these activities. That's what has to be actionable for an investor, a corporate executive, a military commander, a politician, or just a recreational person looking to use information uh, before they can actually get the value out of it. When we talk about moderating content online or identifying disinformation, that becomes really problematic because you have to have a human either initially feed a data set mm -hmm. or code the algorithm for what is desirable or true information. So I know we may get to the topic of biases later, but there's inherently that human fingerprint on all these algorithms. As far as the algorithms themselves, once they get put into operation, uh, you know, what are they looking for? What decision mechanism are they employing? That'll affect your resultant. And, you know, I've even seen AI algorithms where, you know, in the application, there's the toggle switch where you can affect their sensitivity to different uh, types of valence and speech and other things. So I think it's going to a lot be how we code and how we, where we fix those settings to determine what we're going to get at the output. Do you think that it should be used for content moderation? I mean, it certainly can be used. Right. Like well, if we look at uh, Facebook, for instance, they're hiring a large amount of content moderators and they're working on their algorithms and they're working on processes that, to, that can be automated. And, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has said as much in Congress, right? Where do you see an institution like Facebook, for instance, using uh, content moderation like AI as compared to any other organization? Uh, I tend not to prefer to, and I certainly won't in a context like this, comment on specific companies because I interact of with course, them and a lot sure, of, of regulators. Course. But we do see different companies, whether Facebook, Twitter, taking and publicly stating different positions on content mm -hmm. moderation, especially in relation to the upcoming elections. What I will simply say is, as a systemic observer and analyst, it comes down to who guards the guardians, the old game theory question of, do you, a lot of people don't want government moderating content. We call that censorship or big mm -hmm. brother authoritarianism. Right, right. Uh, a lot of people look at big corporate America as a replacement or proxy for that. Who is it in these companies who is going to decide what is hate speech, what is permissible or not free speech? Mm -hmm. uh, for me, that's a challenge in a democratic society of who do you want to give that uh, power to? And I was once at a large international conference, and one of the social media company executives was there. 
and I asked them how they were eliminating terrorist content from their site. Mm -hmm. And I specifically asked, which definition of terrorism are you using? The United Nations Security Council list, the U.S. State Department list, or a corporate definition and list designed by your own general counsel? And just from the question, you can see there isn't necessarily going to be agreement on definitively what constitutes terrorism, let alone permissible speech, hate mm -hmm. speech, misogyny, all these other things that we find socially offensive when they're done in extremists mm -hmm. or at right, other levels. Right. And then how are you going to teach that to a machine? It just makes it Right. Makes so it the first question is, which human are you empowering to teach the machine? And then what do they choose to teach the machine? Right. I recall, actually, I took a course in guerrilla warfare uh, when I was studying in France. And the first thing they taught us is one person's, yeah, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. You know? Well, we have more contemporary, we have very contemporary examples of that. Yeah. Chechen separatists are on Russian Federation's uh, terrorism list. Yeah. Hezbollah is on the U.S. terrorism list. Mm -hmm. They're not, those are not on each other's lists. And mm -hmm. You know, the debates in the U.N. Security Council about who makes it onto the U.N. lists. So mm -hmm. you're exactly right. And one person's hate speech is another person's free speech. Now, I think in the extremes, incitement to violence or extreme racist conversation, that's, of course, I think we have a social standard that we want to uphold. But I certainly don't want to pass the baton to a specific company. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be the information czar either mm. of telling people what they can and cannot say short of things that actually lead to endangerment. Uh, changing topics a little bit. Okay. Uh, how do you think AI will impact uh, privacy in social media space or in general? Um, do you think AI can provide, uh, can, do you think AI can be a vanguard to protect privacy or and is AI in, inherently something that with the collection of data or with automation of collection of that data is something that can remove um, one's protection of privacy. So you'll keep seeing when I get asked questions, I tend to not challenge the question itself, but I take a step back and think about the context of the question. Mm -hmm. Let me offer first that the notion of privacy that we in the United States harbor and the legal concept of privacy, which by the way is never stated in the constitution where privacy doesn't show up. Right. But also, it's a very late 19th, early 20th, 20th century construct mm -hmm. in Supreme Court case law. If you go further back in time, one, two, three hundred years, you didn't have the concept of privacy that we think of today in the anonymous urban society, right? When people lived in smaller villages, you saw people doing their washing, you saw them bathing in the river, and you heard what they were doing in the hut next to you. I think that the concept of privacy that some are trying to hang on to was an anomalous historical anachronism in the longer human experience. So getting back to your specific question, I think we're going to enter a period where there is less privacy simply because there is so much more sensing, monitoring, and data collection. We have things like GDPR and the new California law that just came into effect. Uh, but that's about how you're using the information. The data is still being collected. We know people, unfortunately, violate laws and social norms. So I don't feel fully protected just because there's black and white letter in some statute book somewhere. I look more right. for the de facto right. result. And I'm quite aware that everything from credit decisions to you know, personal relationships are affected by the data that's getting collected today. So. I don't think it is a nefarious thing. I think of it as a historical progression which is brought on by technological development. But I do think there is going to be less privacy. 
and that's just because of data accumulation. We know that with a couple very small data points, we can identify, you know, which human being it is mm-hmm. with incredible accuracy. And I'm not talking about your social security number plus your a picture of your face plus your fingerprint. I'm talking about with statistical analysis. If I know your date of birth, the town you live in, and one or two other indirect or circumstantial things about you, I have a 99% chance of knowing exactly who you are. Right. And that's what AI enables. Do you think AI will result in new data protection laws, greater privacy laws, or do you see that, you know, do you think there'll be a reaction against the use of AI because of this? I think you're going to see some jurisdictions try to limit the use of it the same way San Francisco has outlawed the use of facial recognition technologies on the streets. Mm -hmm. Uh, Doesn't mean that technology is no longer available. It means it's illegal to use it. Again, it's important for me Mm -hmm. to say, you know, my career in intelligence, I was a left to boom guy. My job was to prevent something from happening, not impose law enforcement rules and prosecute after it happened, right? Mm -hmm. So I tend to think about how could you prevent it? Well, the technology is out there. It's proliferated. It's there. It becomes an ex post cleanup game if someone chooses to violate that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That may be a little reductionist or cynical, but that's the way I, for my career, I look at the world. So I think the technology is going to be there. I think it's going to be available. I think we're just going to live in a world of different privacy. Think about Mm -hmm what people used to do, do in their you know, high school and college days that they chose to forget or never talk about and it didn't impact their future career. Well, now with digital media that, and constant monitoring, I feel bad for the young kids who will make mm-hmm. a small mistake or do what all of us did, except this time and they get it recorded for life and it's held against them. Find any congressman, any president, Half the clergy, they've all done similar things. It just wasn't videotaped back then. Right, right. Going back to your metaphor about like the village. Now, the whole world is the village. And everyone Absolutely. knows what everyone else is doing in the huts. It's, yeah. more, it's also more than that. It's the whole world is the village. And also, they have all of your tax returns forever. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's rough. And I think that's a conversation to have about sort of changing social norms online right. and about like what people view as being acceptable in long And that's going to take one generation, right? I so certainly. In cybersecurity, we always used to, in, in the military cybersecurity context, we always used to ask ourselves when an adversary would be willing to send zeros and ones to take out a target rather than a cruise missile. Mm-hmm. Right. And we said the current leadership, both in established uh, allied militaries and in some of our foes and non-state actor foes, still like to see the explosion and the hole in the ground in the satellite photo because that's where they knew they'd accomplish their task. We're now in an era where you have those folks still around and you have digital natives who are more comfortable with the zeros and ones and taking something offline digitally rather than with a kinetic munition. In the workplace, you still have people who look down on someone who, listen, I assume we can use these words, has sexted or mm-hmm. has other things that are pictures, compromising pictures publicly available. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even though those things happened 50 years ago, they weren't recorded and immortalized. Mm-hmm. They probably right. happened even more in certain contexts, as we see from some of the uh, you know, racial issues that have come up with people's Halloween costumes and other things mm-hmm. that have been, pictures have been taken. Uh, 30, 40, 50 years from now, Everyone will be a digital native, and everyone will have had these experiences and these challenges, and I think that's where social norms will change. I think you have a 20-year period where you have some righteous folks with expectations that can't be met in today's technological world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've actually kind of hit on something that is indirectly covered by this podcast, but Dayton and I 
you know, we're in a generation that kind of grew up during the wild west of the internet in a way. Yeah. You know, right. a lot of the norms developed as we were online. So a lot of our guests don't tend to be like that. They tend to be people who have been in the field for a while. They've been established. So it's interesting to see how all our ideas of online kind of vary. And, you know, it's refreshing to hear that. Right. I think a, a big marketed change that we've talked about in the past is the ability to operate online as anonymous and to do most of your business and what you want to do online as anonymous and how that's changing a lot of ways in small ways. Like if you want to comment on a YouTube video, are, are you suggesting theater. you can or cannot operate anonymously? I think, online I think the expectation is that you're not anonymous as, as well as it used to be. That should be the assumption today. I would offer right. to any person using a mobile or tethered device that mm -hmm. you should assume you're being, you're exactly. in a non-anonymous right. environment today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Continuing, uh, I would, I'd like to actually go back to a subject we were kind of dancing around earlier, which is bias in AI, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what kind of biases exist in AI? We've kind of talked a little bit about it before. Uh, could you just tell me about, like, what sort of, you know, are they personal biases from the individuals coding the AI, or is it biases yeah. of the data? What is it? Both, actually. You know, it's you could obviously have uh, conscious or subconscious bias from the human being who's actually doing the coding. We all come with our... Uh, cultural, linguistic, religious backgrounds that impact a lot of what we do in our daily and business lives. So I would not say that coders are immune to similar things. Uh, so there's that. Uh, and then there's also the data that these algorithms get fed during the training phase. And we have some you know, unfortunate circumstances, but we have data points, right? We have the Microsoft chatbot, which quickly became misogynist. China had the experience with a social media bot that after surfing the Chinese social media space for a while and was then asked what the simple question, what do you want to do? Its answer was move to America <laughs> <laughs> and it got shut down. Right. We, you know, we have, there was a, uh, another company had a tool that was hopefully going to assist law enforcement in uh, identifying high crime potential areas or uh, help with law enforcement. And when put into a trial phase in a California jurisdiction, quickly started disproportionately recommending profiling African-Americans and Latinos. Mm -hmm. Well, it turned out it had studied that police jurisdiction's history and had learned from the errors of the previous humans. So we need to think about what data we give as well as the folks who are uh, coding. And in this sense, in a global marketplace, it isn't necessarily nefarious. We have to be aware that there are other well-meaning people from other cultures. And think about where a lot of software coding happens. Much of it is happening in Asia today. Uh, different historical experience, different governmental regimes, different religious persuasions. That all affects how people do their jobs, especially when we get to the question of encoding legal or ethical norms mm -hmm. into processes that are going to be automated. I vehemently agree but you already know this having well we've discussed this in one of our classes as well so i know your position <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i, I but we happen to share it just to be clear oh, no, we, we share the yeah. concerns it's a little leading for me to ask but yeah <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a lot about how ai could be used with cybersecurity as it is right now how it could be used online how you know their how biases might be innate to it what its role might be with privacy but uh you know wh where's ai's potential for cybersecurity most needed at this time? You know, bringing it back to the security question. Yeah, yeah, that, no, that's a big question. Uh, 
This one I gave may give him actually a practical answer. Uh, <laughs> we talk about AI a lot in the information technology and in the information space. Mm -hmm. Right. Think about all the critical infrastructure we depend on that we call OT, operating technology, SCADA, and industrial control systems. Mm -hmm. uh, as we automate the world around us, the smart city concept, you've probably heard that term, and the IoT, uh, I'm very interested in AI applications that can help identify anomalous behavior or predict and detect and prevent adverse manipulation of mm -hmm. IoT and industrial control systems because mm -hmm. that's where I see a lot of the threat landscape moving and I'm uh, very hopeful and actually some of our work in my company is toward that end of trying to help secure that space and I think AI does hold some promise in that area. A big portion of that is itself the predictive maintenance aspect because you need to set a baseline of what you're expecting this operational, these OT to, uh, to decline. You know, you need to have that bar and AI can even be used to determine that as well. A absolutely, and again, if that's gonna be your training data, you have to protect and ensure that the steady state operating levels that it's observing, whether it's at a nuclear facility or a water sanitation mm -hmm. plant or a transportation network, that it's insulated and protected as it's studying the network that it's then gonna look for future anomalies on. Mm -hmm. That might be the only way to honestly to you know, the text that sort of things like that, you know, you're going to have that baseline somehow. Yeah. Uh, Jacob and I are very uh, privileged to be able to speak to a whole bunch of really intelligent, talented people in, in the field of cybersecurity or information, as you said. Uh, a lot of our listeners uh, don't have that same pedigree. Um, so I was curious if you could give us a little bit of insight about maybe some of the uh, media inflation or, or some, some common misconceptions about the future of AI. If you, hmm. if you listen to the public discourse, a lot of it is, you know, the world's going to end. <laughs> like, AI people, is going to take yeah, your job. AI is going to take over. It's going to take your job. There's going to be mass unemployment, which could be the case. But I think there's a lot of speculation. And I think that speculation may outstrip or outpace what AI is doing now and what it could do in five yeah. years or 10 years. So, so I'm very optimistic about AI. We hear about a lot of technologies. And I think AI is one that's going to live up to the hype. Mm. Uh, I've equated it with how someone looks back on the last couple hundred years, the biggest development was electricity. Okay, the second biggest is probably the telegraph because that was the first time you could communicate at nearly the speed of light. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, what we have today with the internet is a quantitative expansion on those concepts of electricity and long distance communication. It's just the bandwidth, you know, the terabytes we're able to transmit are fantastic. We're pushing much more down those conceptual pipelines. I think 300 years from now, when you look back, AI is going to be that electricity, a foundational technology that so many more things that have improved human life are based upon. Mm -hmm. So I'm very optimistic about AI. I'm also conscious of nefarious, illegal, criminal, or adversarial efforts to, that will be in place to manipulate it along the way. So I think we need to curate it well. I think we need to accept its limitations and be prepared for glitches, but you know, in my mind, it's gonna be a really integral part of our future in so many different ways, and in the security environment, I hope we can ensure that the pros outweigh the cons. Right, what in your mind, when you say, oh, you're optimistic, uh, you mentioned the IoT and you know, IoT cities. Do you have something that leaps to your mind as, oh, that would be incredible, Where, what would be that level of implementation of AI that you would like to see? Health. Health. With 
nanotechnology, mm-hmm. information technology, data processing, and AI. I mean, we've already seen, I think, the tip of the iceberg with the ability of AI to look at radiology images and detect cancer. I mean, it's already helping women today with the ability to improve the quality of mammogram reading Mm -hmm. incredibly. It's helping in other areas. I think that is just the tip of the iceberg. As biological science improves and we actually understand both our genetics and how our brain and nervous system work more in the future, and we have the ability to process crazy large amounts of data through AI and predictive technologies, I think you're going to see a dramatic increase in healthcare and longevity for those who can afford access to this technology. Mm -hmm. To me, one of the greatest downsides is going to be the disparity and of how the benefits are distributed across society and societies. That's where I hope we can work together to raise the collective uh, quality of life for all humans on the planet. But I think AI holds great promise. And if you're looking for a specific sector, I think health 50 years from now is going to be a very different discussion than it is today. So going back to Dayton's original question, he was asking a lot about, uh, you know, is there an overhyped aspect of AI? I like that you actually talked about health because it's it's like kind of a less sexy area for artificial intelligence. You know, people think about like, you know, the Terminator or something yeah. like that. Right, right. So I jumped right to what I thought the, pos- you know, the positive future looked like. Let's talk about the current. A lot of people are watching the science fiction and Want to know what's the real state of play? Where we're at is actually the world of machine learning and expert systems, okay? Inductive reasoning by an automated algorithm that absorbs a bunch of empirical information or data that's fed and then is able to do pattern recognition and predictive analytics on that data. That's a lot of gobbledygook, but to a layperson, what you should hear in that is it's assigned a task and it's computationally doing it better than a human could. Mm-hmm. The bit about free-thinking machines taking over the world, that's something we call super AI. Uh, It gets to general AI where the machine can do lateral thinking across different tasks that it hasn't been assigned. That's still a thing for the future. I think we're going to get to more general AI in the coming decades. Uh, I don't think you're going to reach that supreme AI, the machines take over, uh, certainly not in the near future, and I think some of the real scientists out there you know, the Stephen Hawking's and the others have commented on this, and that is questionable, if at all, but certainly out multiple, multiple decades. Actually, going back to a thing you said, it's uh, how that chatbot in China learned to say, I want to go to America, didn't really learn that it wants to go to America. It learned, you know, like that would be a response. It's yeah. kind of like it doesn't have that cognition behind right. it. Right, and that's exactly right. The other example I use to effectuate that point is, you remember when Watson, the IBM... Uh, AI technology played in one Jeopardy, right? Right, right. Watson didn't know it was on Jeopardy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Watson was performing the task of providing answers to or questions to answers in the Jeopardy context, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? But it didn't know it was on a game show. Right, right. That's this self-awareness mm-hmm. that the human brain is still able to accomplish, but that AI yet isn't. Mm-hmm. Right. The second thing I wanted to dwell on was you talked about a growing disparity. Uh, because of AI. Could you go into where that's going to be sourced because of, or you know, what's that going to grow out of, really, honestly? Yeah, it's, it's something that really concerns me. Uh, I think it's going to happen both within and across societies, as I mentioned. Uh, Dayton had asked if people are going to lose their jobs and all the hype. Well, yeah, some people are going to lose jobs, the same way we have less people driving horse-drawn carriages today. Mm-hmm. Hopefully those people began driving trucks or doing other trades and professions that appealed to them and gave them a higher quality of life. Uh, 
So the marketplace will change. I hope it will adapt. I think there'll be new jobs created. Hopefully those will be more pleasurable than some of the previous tasks that humans have repetitively done in the past. Uh, as far as the disparity, my concern is that with the advantage that AI processing provides, companies that have access to large data sets and can employ it are going to be more effective at marketing. They will then outcompete their retailing mm. competitors, right? We've already seen the aggregation of retailing and online retailing in some very large organizations. And we all talk about the cute mom and pop boutique on High Street or Main Street that's increasingly challenged, right? One of the things I love seeing in store windows, and I live in a very quaint historical town, is if you see it here, buy it here to keep us here, ah. okay? So that's one mindset. Uh, they should be developing their own AI. <laughs> well, possibly, but again, they're not they may or may not be in that competitive environment, right? right. Maybe right. their better competitive angle is their human angle. Yeah, in that case, that's what they're relying on or playing mm -hmm. to. So I think also the different socio socioeconomic strata in society, you're going to see a further separation of haves and have-nots. We have a very, uh, I would say, undesirable trend of extreme accumulation of wealth and an extreme minority of the population, certainly in uh developed economies in the West. And I think you're going to see that exacerbated unless certain measures are taken to make these technologies readily available to all so that they can leverage them. And then let's talk at the international level. We certainly see other nations and other societies who haven't progressed as quickly into the modern information technology era, who aren't largely doing information and services economies, but maybe still be in primary product production or agriculture or other things, and those will, you know, continue to remain, but at the institutional or aggregated level, it's going to become more and more difficult to be competitive with entities that are leveraging these other new technologies. So uh, to me, that's a, you know, world development in the United Nations issue, but one that we should all be cognizant of because our fate on the planet is increasingly intertwined. And if you have some folks who are struggling to survive and not in a position to adopt better environmental standards, better health and hygiene standards, uh, that little village we talked about, it may have 7 pe billion people in it, but I'd hate to see the next Spanish influenza. Mm -hmm. I'd hate to see the next environmental catastrophe, the Three Mile Island, the Chernobyl. Uh, so I think we all have to be cognizant of what's happening in our local area, in our broader polity writ large, and actually at the international level, because there will be cross ramifications. So the final question is, you know, we're seeing how AI could be used ubiquitously across so many different domains, but in particular, what sort of threat landscape does this offer? You know, is it a threat just to security? Is, it, is, is there a threat in its everyday use? How, where, where does the threat exist with AI? At a couple different levels, uh, I've written and spoken on this before, so anyone who's followed my material, if they have, will forgive me for being redundant. Uh, but we've already talked about the AI itself, the uh, concerns with encoding bias from the humans who create it. Mm. We've talked about data poisoning attacks and potential manipulation of AI algorithms that are already in operation, right? If, if, if I know how an algorithm works, I can feed it certain inputs to encourage it to give a certain output, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a perfect technology in itself. 
And then we have the issue of the applications AI is put towards, the very same AI that can be detecting actual criminal threats to risk and life and limb of honest citizens can also be used by authoritarian regimes to monitor, profile uh, other individuals who they are seeking to suppress. And here I'm concerned for ethnic minorities in certain countries, etc. Um, and then, of course, we've talked about it automating the cybersecurity threat landscape. Uh, so I see at a number of levels, the, the one that's probably not immediately intuitive to a bunch of your listeners is we've heard the discussions about keeping humans in the loop for natural oversight of AI algorithms. Well, the minute you tell me your system has a human in the loop, and I know that that human probably has slower computational capabilities than the algorithm itself, if I were an adversary, I would target that human intentionally. And I'm thinking about here at strategic stability levels, uh, nuclear deterrence levels, where you don't want a doomsday machine, you want a human oversight. Well, it can often be easier through disinformation or data manipulation to confuse, mislead, or even just delay a human actor who's in place as a safeguard. So it's a pretty tricky conundrum because the exact thing you think that is going to be uh, you know, your most helpful security feature could actually become your weakest link. And that brings us full circle to where we've often found ourselves in cybersecurity of the human is often the weakest link, even though they're also often your best path to a solution. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, if it's okay with you, Jacob, I would like to ask if you have any media or book recommendations for our listeners. Is there anything that you've been reading or something that you think is really indicative or something that a person should read to better understand perhaps AI. even something you've published that you'd like to have us mention so i didn't come in with a specific recommendation i don't have oh, anything of off the shelf coming out <laughs> that's quite all right uh, what i'd like to point you to is a lot of the discussions regarding the ethics of ai uh there's a lot of work being done in good places i know there's an eu high commission report out on the topic i myself have written a journal article an essay in ethics and international affairs on the topic mm-hmm. But I think it's be really important for us all to seriously think about the law and ethics of AI before just jumping into a future that we haven't thought about concertedly. Well, thank you so much, Sean, for joining us. It's been a delight to have you here talking about AI, our favorite subject. My pleasure. Thank Thank you for the invitation. So I actually want to dwell on one of the last things he discussed, which is the weakest factor of AI is the human factor, or at least potentially one of the weakest factors of human of AI is the human in the loop factor. Mm-hmm. I actually had never heard that before. He, I don't believe he mentioned that in class. So that was kind of a new revelation to me as well. Right, right. I mean, if you have this, this, this mechanism, this technological mechanism that is able to make quick decisions and split decisions, um, what if those decisions are not in the interest of the people who are using that system? Mm-hmm. I think for that reason, a human in the loop is very, very important. And yet, as, as uh, the professor expertly said, um, it creates vulnerability and it creates, the, uh, it creates an opportunity where you'd think, oh, AI is removing human inadequacies from the equation but no it's just displacing that human inadequacy to one location mm-hmm. i i generally take the opinion it it can codify human inadequacies at times what do you mean by that well this is going back to the bias sort of uh aspect of it you know mm-hmm. where we are talking about how like a cultural bias could impact how an ai is designed for instance you know one society may value human life more than others or may value age uh right. more than others so that would impact how an ai is developed 
So that's a bias from the creator impacted onto the machine. And now that's codified, which is kind of an interesting thing because it's almost codifying norms mm-hmm. into a computer that is now then seen as an objective party. So you've almost restricted the ability of norms to change over time. Interesting. Well, are you saying that code isn't flexible and code can't change over time? Code can change over time, but it's, and I think many people would even argue that code is, you know, very flexible and and, and is more malleable than law. But Uh I would argue in this particular circumstance, it's not a matter of the fact that the code can be changed. It's the matter of the fact that the code is seen as objective where some people might object to the morality of certain laws. When you are faced with a machine that says, well, this machine which processed your information, it has all of the best statistical analyses. It's very intelligent. It mm-hmm. knows exactly what it's doing. You have no reasonable means of objecting to how it came to this conclusion, but it says you need to be under arrest because you're right. a potential security threat. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's an extreme example, obviously, right, but right. It's, a, it's a situation where the machine is like seen as the objective party. And how, how do you contradict that? I think, I, uh, I understand what you're saying. I'm going to push back a little bit. I think you're inferring that society is going to remain static in the face of the proliferation of decision-making in AI, right? Um, moving forward, we could see some legislation or we could see social pushing towards making um, making the decisions that artificial intelligence make more transparent, um, making there have some amount of accountability or be able to, to understand how these decisions are made because if they're being made all the time and they're affecting people, mm-hmm. um, there should be some kind of transparent process where people can interact with it. That's not the case right now. Certainly. Um, you can't, you, you don't, we don't know what, what artificial intelligence in say an algorithm or not that an algorithm is an artificial intelligence, but there's no transparency in how a lot of algorithms are working to mm-hmm. take an example. And they impact our lives incredibly. And I think, I think currently as it is right now, and for those people who haven't listened to this podcast, I think most people would think that you're right. It is a black box. It is a decision. So information is given in and a right decision is coming out. I think as more people are exposed to um, how artificial intelligence works and how much bias there can exist in the technology, I think that perception is going to change. Well, it's certainly hopeful. I don't know if I necessarily share that opinion, but I would actually at this time plug an excellent book on this sort of subject. It's called Weapons of Math Destruction. Uh, Weapons of Math Destruction? Weapons of Math Destruction. Uh And there's also an episode of this uh, covered in the podcast 99% Invisible. Uh Uh, Really suggest listening to that or reading the book. Fantastic pieces on bias and the role that, you know, invisible algorithms play in society. Like a particular example would be how a United flight would decide who it's kicking off if the flight is filled. I mean, obviously I'm dating this joke really terribly, but obviously, you know, the policy of just beating up the, the first person you see isn't going to fly anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a policy in place. How, how does your, how do you value your customers on the flight? Who does it target? Right. Well, this guy, he doesn't fly United very often. He only flies yeah. here once every so often. So let's target him as possibly a person to kick off the flight. Mm. You know, like that's that's an invisible algorithm that's making decision making that you're not necessarily thinking about. Right. But right. Or, or the algorithm on YouTube that gets me to watch, you know, two hours straight of cupcake videos. Or the algorithm on YouTube that continuously suggests I watch Family Guy videos no matter how many times I ask it to stop. <laughs> what, you can, you can ask the algorithm to stop? You can ask it. It doesn't work, clearly, because I keep oh, getting wow. recommended those videos. Oh, but geez. This, we're, 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 we're diverging here. here. This yeah. is going to be... But yeah, I, I, you know, I think you're, you may overestimate a little bit about the role transparency will play. I mean, you're playing with very complex pieces of technology. I, right. I would certainly hope 
that norms would shift as we discussed in the conversation that as a generation that is brought up with artificial intelligence, a generation that's brought up online might view these things Mm -hmm. more sensitively. They will think about these problems. They'll be more cognizant of the possibility of fake news, things like this. But, you know, it's hard to say if that will be true or not. I would certainly hope that they would be able through transparency to understand that this technology might be biased. But Mm. I worry that it gets so advanced that even if you show the processes that people's ability to understand it is not enough to actually see the flaws in it. Right. And I think that goes in back into uh, what we were talking about, about inequality, right? Mm-hmm. That there is this high concentration of investment and capital to a small portion of the population. Mm-hmm. But at the same time with that, that concentration of capital, there's a concentration of knowledge and understanding. Yeah. I think that's a divide that he didn't mention that I think we right. should talk about is the technological divide. Yeah. You know, and, that, and they're they're not mutually exclusive. They definitely feed one another. Oh, certainly. But, but it, 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 one doesn't preclude the other necessarily. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, I think that's definitely something that we're going to see. I mean, people who are able to understand the inherent biases in these things about the technology are certainly going to have a leg up. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to even at times be able to, uh, you know, they can uh, reward hack the machines, perhaps. That's just a, like an idea that could be thrown around for this. So, uh Jacob, tell me why you think this episode is one big campaign episode for Andrew Yang. You know, it's funny you say that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think this is a campaign episode for Andrew Yang, though I'm sure we can get into You're telling me you're not part of the Yang gang? I think we already have to remove this section. (laughs) (laughs) I I actually want to... No, let's talk about Yang first. Uh uh, He's a Brown alumni. He is a Brown alumni like you, so you're very biased in this situation, much like an AI. Going off of this discussion we were just having about government transparency and high amounts of wealth being accumulated, being accumulated by the authority of, of algorithms, yeah. we're already seeing political movement against this, right? And I would take this as evidence on my side and why I think I'm right. <laughs> but I, I think uh, Andrew Yang's campaign right now talking about automation and talking about the concentration of, of technological understanding in a small subset of the population mm-hmm. um, and coming up with a, uh, I mean, a very famous policy um, response to that, which is, okay, we're going to tax, um, we're going to tax institutions that make, that make money off of this, t- these technological innovations and just give them back to the population vis-a-vis a, a, a freedom dividend. Everyone gets a thousand dollars, right? Um, which is a, is a means to, counteract this this huge amount of accumulation is to just simply redistribute it Mm -hmm. Um, which is very wild outside the box thinking for i think the our american political system but i think andrew yang's um campaign is indicative of this of this groundswell movement of a lot of people against the current economic system as it is right now as it relates to um, automation machine learning ai etc it's very interesting you say that because i i at times actually think the same candidate is almost proving my point in a way. Really? Because how how could we have different opinions? How could we have different <laughs> opinions about the same yeah, subject exactly. matter? Uh, well, I actually think that there is very much a vibe of uh-huh. Andrew Yang and his use of well, the data suggests this, and therefore this is the appropriate reaction, mm-hmm. which is a very much a I will defer to the machine learning algorithm that right. has determined what is the appropriate course of action, which is a very much a hey, we're going to use this black box that you don't know how it works to make this decision. I'm not trying to be a Luddite. I'm certainly not a Luddite. We run right, a right, cybersecurity right. podcast and I work right. with AI. Yeah. So this is just well, like- we, a, we actually just pound rocks together yes. and uh, that's how this this feed is brought to you, dear listener. Yes, we've placed rocks strategically throughout <laughs> the continental United States. And we so have drones deliver the rocks. 
<laughs> yes, it's it, unfortunately it's the only way we figured out how to run this podcast. Yeah, if somebody we, knows an easier way to distribute uh, media, please let me know. Right, right. And, and Jacob's actively looking to replace me with an artificial intelligence chatbot. And so I'll just be talking to Jacob about how I want to go to America the whole time. Literally, little does Dayton know that every single episode is actually mine for his uh, vocal tics. And soon I will be able to su- uh, supplant him with an actual co Oh my co-host. God. Could you make me a, 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 a decrypted deep fake? It would be certainly funny to do. Oh man. We don't have the time or money for that. We but don't. That would be great. Well, we've got a lot to chew on with this episode. I don't want to overload our audience members. There's a lot going on here. Unfortunately, AI is one of those, well, not fortunately and unfortunately, it's one of those areas where it connects kind of everything Mm -hmm. about It's a transformational technology. Transformational technology. So we're going to have to leave it at that for today. As always, if you're interested in learning more about technology, security, and, you know, how it interplays with society, continue listening to Decrypted. We'll be releasing episodes every two weeks. And we look forward to seeing you all in the next episode. Goodbye. Decrypted is made possible by the Cybersecurity and Privacy Research Institute, which is a center for GW and the Washington area to promote technical research and policy analysis of issues that have a significant computer security and information assurance components. To learn more, look up CSPRI or go to cspri.seas.gwu.edu.